We are going to be covering two chapters in X today, which is a lot. Whew, I know. Uh, actually, I'm going to summarize one, and then we're going to focus on the second one. And the reason we're doing this is because you really do need to hold these chapters together. You do. Um, the chapters and verses in our Bibles, they're very helpful. Uh, they help us navigate so we can all find the same place, etc., instead of being hunting around forever about where is where is that sentence? Uh, but they are not strict guides. They came well after the fact. They are not strict guides. They are not boundaries for us. And we should hold these stories together, which is true of our story today. Aside from these two chapters, I also have two points for us to hold on to as well. Uh, the first point is that some of the people we talk to, we, we witness to, they are going to think that you and I are insane. They are. Uh, that our faith and our lives of faith make zero sense to them. Now, this is not the only response we'll get, but it's one we will get, and we should expect, and we should not be put off by. And we're going to see that in a response to Paul today. And I hope we can learn from Paul's example. Uh, secondly, that Paul shows us and calls us to a witness that is faithful, that does not care how long it takes, or quite frankly, doesn't care what it costs him. That short time or long, as is my title today, is we will care about the response. We will care about the fruit in people's lives, and so we will keep witnessing and keep on calling whatever the response we get. Our expectation is not that everyone will respond our expectation is not that everyone will respond immediately, but our expectation is that some will respond as we have. Well, let's get into it. And in Acts, where we are, Acts 24, 25, 26, Paul has been arrested. This is in Jerusalem. Uh, he was beaten up there, then arrested. Then he was taken to the city of Caesarea, where he appeared before the Roman governor, Felix. And Paul gets to testify to Felix and his wife, Drusilla. Now, they don't respond, but Felix, the Roman governor, uh, held out for a bribe from Paul. So he kept asking to talk to Paul, and Paul kept talking to him, and talking to him, and witnessing to him. And that went on for two years, two years of this. And at the end of that time, Felix was replaced by a new Roman governor. Uh, seemingly the powers that be worked out that he wasn't the best Roman governor. Maybe the whole hanging out for bribes was part of the picture. But yes, he was replaced by a new Roman governor called Festus. What a great name. Uh, it actually means festive or festival, if that makes sense. It's actually his surname, by the way, too. But Acts 25 is taken up with the new governor, Governor Festus, getting into his new job. And the whole chapter has the sense of this, this new governor getting up to speed with his responsibilities. And maybe he was well motivated because, let's remember, the previous governor was removed. He didn't want to drop the ball. And one of his responsibilities, one of Festus's responsibilities, was his prisoner, Paul. And Festus really tries to understand the charges against Paul, but he doesn't. 
He's never even heard of the name of Jesus for starters. And Paul is talking about this Jesus guy um, suffering and dying and rising from the dead. He, He just doesn't know what to make of it. And then when Festus offers to Paul to go to Jerusalem, Paul appeals to Caesar. He asks, instead of going to Jerusalem, no, you've got to take me to Rome. And we can see why Paul would do this. Uh, The people in Jerusalem were trying to kill him, after all. And Festus has little choice but to send him to Rome, but he doesn't even know what the charges are against Rome, sorry, against Paul. He doesn't even know what he's going to write to send along with Paul. And it's into this situation that King Agrippa turns up with his sister Bernice. And they turn up to welcome Festus. Festus is the new guy. So they turn up. I don't know if they brought a housewarming gift, but that's sort of what they were doing. They were coming to meet Festus. And Festus sees them as an answer to his problem with Paul. You guys are Jewish. Agrippa is a Jewish king. Bernice, his sister, is Jewish as well. Perhaps you understand this controversy. Perhaps you can give me an answer about what I should write to Rome to send with Paul. And so it's with these three powerful figures, this Roman governor Festus, and a King Agrippa and his sister Bernice, that Paul gets to speak again. And pretty much any time Paul gets to speak, what does he do? He testifies to Jesus, doesn't he? And that's what we're going to see happen today. Let me read then Acts 26 to you. Acts 26 verse 1. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are so well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jewish people all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that I conform to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished and tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests about noon. King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Is it hard for you to kick against the goads? Then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. 
I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and then to the Gentiles, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. That is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day. So I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. That the Messiah would suffer and, as the first to rise from the dead, would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I am not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped your notice because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you but all who are listening to me today may become what I am except for these chains. The king rose and with him the governor and Bernice and those sitting with them. After they left the room, they began saying to one another, this man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. This is God's word to us. Well, Paul is such a great example of someone who grabs any and every opportunity to witness to Jesus, whoever they happen to be. In this case, it is mainly Agrippa, King Agrippa, and his sister Bernice and Festus the governor. But we know from Acts 25 that actually many of the high-ranking military officers were present along with the prominent men of the city. There was a bit of a crowd listening to Paul. And this means that as Paul testifies to Agrippa, he also gets to speak to many other people as well. And there's a truth here. Often our witness is to one or two people, like someone has asked us a question and we respond to them. But so often there's other people listening in as well. And I think this is particularly true with kids. They're very good at listening, aren't they? I pray that we would learn from Paul and we would grab every and every, every and any opportunity to testify to Jesus. People are watching, people are listening. And Paul begins his defense by telling his story. Now, this is a story, his testimony. We've already heard this twice. It's a really powerful story, particularly for answering the question about the accusations made against him. It's powerful because Paul used to be a persecutor of Christians. He used to be on the other side. He used to be with the people who were accusing him. He had chased down Christians. He had arrested them. He had voted for their deaths. And yet here he is, a Christian. 
here he is in chains as a Christian, standing strong, not even trying to get out of it. I mean, that that makes a point, doesn't it? And it's a great story, and I'm not going to repeat it. But I want us to notice who reacts to Paul's story today. Acts 26 verse 22, sorry, chapter 26 verse 22. But God has helped me, this is Paul speaking, but God has helped me to this very day. So I stand here and testify to small and great alike. The great was certainly there. I imagine there was a few small people as well. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. It's not a gripper, the Jew, who reacts. It is the Roman governor. It's Festus who reacts. Festus doesn't have a Jewish background like Agrippa, but he's been tracking, he's been listening to Paul, and there comes a tipping point in Paul's defense, Paul's story, that just blows his mind. So much so, he's got to shout out, you're mad, you've lost your mind. And that tipping point for Festus, it's the fact that Paul tells him that the Messiah, the Savior, would suffer, would be killed, and rise from the dead. This is just too much for Festus. It does not compute for him. Now, Agrippa has been silent. The Jew has been silent. Because the Old Testament did prophesy, did protect, sorry, predict a Messiah. But Festus is far from silent. Here he was asking for Agrippa's thoughts on Paul, but he's the one to speak up first. And Festus is an example for us. There's something to learn from Festus here. We come across people who have never heard of Jesus before, let alone what he's done. And when we talk to, start to talk about Jesus, it just all seems crazy to them. It just seems like far too much. It conflicts with everything that makes sense in their minds. A suffering saviour? What sort of saviour is this? A murdered saviour? Wasn't a very good saviour then, was he? A risen saviour? What is he doing? Is he coming or going now? And a saviour who sends people out with a message? A message that will put them in chains? What is going on here? Look, we'll likely never be in a situation quite like Paul's. But we're going to meet people like Festus. We absolutely will. And our reaction should be like Paul's, though. Acts 26, verse 25, I am not insane, most excellent Festus. Paul keeps it respectful. (laughs) What I am saying is true and reasonable. And here is the point we need to know. Jesus... The gospel is both true and reasonable. Jesus truly lived and truly lives. He really suffered. He physically died and he objectively, he factually rose from the dead to save us. And those facts change everything. Jesus changes what is reasonable in this world and what is crazy. If those facts about Jesus are untrue, 
then Paul is a crazy and deluded old man. But if they're true, if Jesus really is the Son of God who lived, suffered, died, and rose from the dead, then Paul, Paul's the only one who really knows what's going on. Paul is the only reasonable one in that room. You know, in 1913, there was a man called William Borden. He was 26 years old. He was no dummy. He was a graduate of both Yale and Princeton. And he came from an incredibly wealthy family. Uh, He was not poor when he gave away half a million dollars. Now, that's in 1913. Yes, lots and lots of money. But he then went on to be a missionary in the Muslim world, Many of his contemporaries thought he was crazy, and when he died six months later from cerebral meningitis amidst the flies and heat of a Cairo hospital, uh, some were sure he was mentally unbalanced. He'd given all that money away. He'd left comfort to go and do this, and he died. But William wasn't crazy. He saw these facts, this truth. He believed that if Jesus is the Savior. He's come and lived and suffered and died and risen, and that changes everything. His wealth means nothing. There's something far, far more important. C.T. Studd was also a man from a wealthy family. He was one of England's most famous athletes, yet he left it all to go to China and serve people there to make Jesus known. Uh, It's said that he was ridiculed for his enthusiasm, which is a really nice way, a polite, very English way, I suppose, of saying you're crazy. You're just very enthusiastic. And you know what? By the standards of his day and age, he was mad. He he left it all. He, He gave up so much. I think that's true of our day and age as well. He left it all. He He gave it up. But C.T. Studd said, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. He knew the facts. He knew the difference they should make in his life. And he lived it out. He lived it out. This is a picture of Jim Elliott. I've mentioned him before. He was a missionary to Ecuador, and he wrote in his journal, and you can look this up online, you can find the photo, a photo of his journal where he wrote this. He wrote, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Really, really good line. Jim fulfilled these words as a relatively young man when he, along with four others, were martyred for their faith by the people they were trying to reach in Ecuador. Jim was no fool. He gave up his life. He did. But he gained something he cannot lose. He knows what's going on. You can read his story. His wife wrote it. She actually went back a few years after this to that same tribe and brought Jesus to them. And yes, some of them came to faith. And we see this belief in Paul when he would write in Philippians 3, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. 
What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. And I believe Paul would say, and that I might make him known. We will hopefully come across people like Festus. I mean, hopefully come across them. People who have never even heard of Jesus. Or if they have, he's just a swear word. I've got to be careful. Quick look around the room. This is Waipaka and it's small. But Robin and I have some friends who are non-Christians. So yes, they live here and I'm just aware you might bump into them one of these days. Uh, But the husband says, I've never even been in a church. What do you do there? Which is sort of funny to me, actually. But that's the reality of the people we meet. They have no idea. Yeah, there's a guy, Jesus, and there's a cross. And what do you do? And when they hear the gospel, and they should be hearing the gospel from us, look, they might have the most confused look on their face. They might react with disbelief. They might call us crazy. And the Christian faith is crazy, unless it's true. Unless it's true that Jesus is is God and has suffered and died and risen for us, because then that changes everything, absolutely everything. C.S. Lewis would write that Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or he is Lord. It's really the only options. And the thing is, if he's Lord, then we need to take him seriously, whoever we are, great or small alike. Jesus changes everything. We can no longer live by the values of this world. We can't. And this world will call us crazy because of that. But we will know what is true and that living in the light of it is the only reasonable thing to do. Let us be a people who this world will call crazy. It should call us crazy. Because we know the truth that turns everything upside down. That our wealth and our comfort are not number one in our lives. Money's a reality. Comfort's not all bad. They're not number one though. Because Jesus is Lord. Let us be a people who know the surpassing value of Christ compared to everything that we can say with Paul. I consider that it all garbage. It's all so much fluff. It's stuff to be given away that I might gain Christ, that I might live in him. Let us be a people who make him known, whether people call us crazy or whatever it costs. It will cost something. Let's do it. Amen? The second person, the second response we see in Acts 26 is the response of Agrippa. After listening to Paul and hearing Paul's invitation to him to respond, to believe, Agrippa replies to Paul in verse 28, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replies, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, Well, except for these chains. In answer to Agrippa's question, Paul gives a loud yes. Yes, Agrippa, that's actually exactly what I'm going for. But whether it happens right here and now or whether it happens a long time, 
The point is that you respond. You believe. Paul was all about seeing people come to faith in Jesus however long it took. And think about this situation. Here is Festus, Roman governor, Agrippa, Jewish king and his sister Bernice, some of the most powerful people in the country, and with them are military officials and significant people of Caesarea. They are there to judge Paul and to decide what to write about him. And Paul, the one in chains, is calling for them to respond, to believe what he believes, to come and join him. Think about that. It's pretty bold, isn't it? Paul's essentially saying, come on down, Agrippa, come join me. Come and trust Jesus. He will turn your life completely upside down. Come and join me. Perhaps you will have to suffer. Paul was going for it. He believed it. This was where life, true life was found. Not in your wealth, Agrippa. Not in your power or prestige. Here is a life. Jesus is offering you a life, Agrippa, that is worth everything. The sad news is Agrippa didn't join Paul. He didn't believe in Jesus. But you know what? They didn't stop Paul, did it? He was going for it. And it shouldn't stop us. Look, I believe, because I've talked to a few of you, that we want to see people come to faith, don't we? True? We have family members, we have friends, we have workmates, we have neighbours who would love, love to come to faith. But we need the same mindset as Paul's, that we know who has saved us, we know who has sent us, and whether it is a short time or a long time, doesn't actually matter. We're going to persevere in faith. We will persevere in making Jesus known. We will persevere that we might see some believe. You know, in the 3rd and 4th century, there was a man called Augustine. There's probably a few men called Augustine, I admit. But there was one man called Augustine whose mum's name was Monica. And I don't know how Monica came to faith in Jesus, but she prayed for, well, her son Augustine and her husband as well. But she prayed for her son Augustine. And, well, things got worse first. Uh, Augustine grew up and he led a very immoral life. Uh, He had several mistresses and he struggled a lot with lust. But a day came in Augustine's life where he was struggling with God and himself. And as his account goes, he heard a child singing. He couldn't even see the child. He heard this child singing a song. He didn't know the song, but the, the words of the song called for him to read. And he knew the song meant for him to read the Bible. And so he found some of the scriptures and he opened them up. And we all do this, don't we? God, what's going on? Just open it up and expect God to tell him. Well, he opened it up and he opened it up to Romans 13, verses 13 and 14. So he read these two verses. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in, wait for it, sexual immorality and debauchery, just, this is Augustine reading this, not in dissension and jealousy, rather clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. And Augustine knew, he knew in that moment that God was speaking to him 
and he believed. In a moment, he believed he had quite a bit to change in his life. But he gave up the world to follow Christ. He went on to become a bishop in the church and one of, quite possibly the most, but certainly one of the most significant theologians the church has ever had. He has read to this day. And how happy was his mum just that he came to faith. You know, the story is told about D.L. Moody. He was an evangelist and he did a lot of things. Uh, But apparently, apparently, he kept a list of a hundred names of friends of his whom he prayed for. He kept it with him and he prayed for them every day. And at his funeral, I'm told, 96 of those people had come to faith. It's a really good achievement, isn't it? Wouldn't we be stoked? I'm almost embarrassed to say, can I think of 96 friends or families I could put on a list, actually? Good. The remaining four were at his funeral and came to faith there, by the way. I mean, in one sense, he never got to see it, but in a truer sense, he got to see it. They're probably with him right now. Short time along, we are called to have this mindset in our prayers and our words and in our lives that however long it takes, some will come to believe. That's what matters. doesn't matter when. It just matters that they come. That they come. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are likely never to be in the situation Paul was, but all of us, all of us will, will, will face and, and we know people who do not believe in you. And you have us there to testify, to witness to those people, to make you known. And Lord, we're, we're scared and nervous at times, but give us a confidence in you that we would indeed open our mouths and we would witness, we would testify like Paul. Lord, I wonder how, how nervous he was as he stood before all those people, powerful people. I'm guessing he knew that he also stood before you. Oh Lord, that we would have that confidence that we live before you. We live in you. Indeed, you have a home for us that cannot be taken for us, but oh, oh, that our words and our actions would witness to you. And we know, Lord, not everyone is going to believe, but oh, that some would believe. Oh, Lord, that some of our family members, our friends, our workmates, our neighbours would hear the good news from us. Maybe they'll be perplexed, Maybe they'll be dumbfounded. Maybe they'll think we've lost our mind. But that they would hear and through your work, through your spirit, indeed come to believe. Oh Lord, we long for that day. Help us to be faithful now though. Help us to be faithful today that we would indeed witness to you, Jesus, and make you known. That indeed we would see your kingdom come not only in our lives, but in other people's lives as well. We pray this in and through your name. Amen.